1611. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So I want to take you back in time. I still Approximately six years for each of you. Did you not watch Back to Future? Let's go back to middle school. A very stinky, smelly time when um, we thought wearing the same outfit three days in a row, thought a shower was a good idea. Still is. Uh, <laughs> what? How many of you had like, like you look back on middle school and you're like, yeah, that was that was good. I did good. Okay, I was good. Okay, so a minority. <laughs> okay. So what what changed between, uh, in the broadest of terms, I mean the broadest of terms, what changed between you in middle school and you now? We're not talking biologically, right? <laughs> Didn't I'm talking like, I met you. <laughs> you did? Okay. I did. That's the primary change, huh? Thank you. My entire social circle changed. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's twice. Very true. Knowledge and wisdom. Yes, twice okay. it did. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> I actually got a social circle. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Same. <laughs> Okay. I'm going to stop playing so many video games. Okay. Oh, that's right. I became less selfish. I got my braces off. You did? I got my braces off. <laughs> <laughs> I got my braces off. So, obviously, in every sense, you grew. In the broadest of senses, you've grown. And, or at least you should have. <laughs> I'm gonna stop. Um, never mind. Um, but, Shut up. you should. <laughs> So for I mean some of us less physically than others, but um, <laughs> growth is a way of life. I mean we think of you think of plants outside, you think of your life. Every the way of life should be growth. And we look at people who you know are born with an infirmity or a physical retardation and that stunts their growth and that's tragic, and we look on that very sadly and remorsefully. And it is even true to a greater degree in the spiritual sense. <clears throat> a failure to grow spiritually is even more tragic than a physical inability to grow. And so tonight we're going to be talking about growth. In, in this uh, sanctification, spiritual maturity, development, uh, whatever term you want to use, we're going to be talking about development. And this is kind of place right here in the middle of 1 John, um, and we'll get to that text here in a little bit. However, before diving into the text itself, I wanted to take a quick topical study through the topic and um, address myths about sanctification before diving into the stages of sanctification that are placed in 1 John. Before, before we get there, though, I want to say that growth is the goal of all Christians. It is the primary end for all Christians. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. What is the upward call? It's to be like Christ. As Romans 8 says, that we are predestined to be like Christ. Um, if, if you disagree with this truth, um, God will reveal this one to you. We should keep walking in what we've been taught and follow spiritual examples. Three, uh, Philippians 3, 15 through 17, it says that God will reveal this truth to you if you disagree. Philippians 3, 5, uh, 15 through 17. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your, and keep your eyes <clears throat> on those who walk according to the example you have in us. As a matter of fact, you know, you think about meeting in churches, in bodies, in congregations, and the very purpose of that is to promote spiritual development. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, skip 14 and 15. Skip 14 to 15, excuse me. 
Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How do we mature individually? How do we mature corporately in a body? First uh, Peter 2, 2 through 3. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have become a Christian, the way you grow is by the milk of the word. And that's true individually, that's true corporately. We grow through the means of grace of the word of God. <clears throat> so tonight's going to be about sanctification, growth, development. Second uh, Peter 3.18 describes this a little bit. in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So there's, a, there's three senses in which sanctification is used and I'm just going to breeze over them so that we kind of have an idea of what we're talking about. There's a sense in which we are sanctified excuse me, when we are saved. We're set apart and sanctified in Christ. There's a sense in which there's a future sanctification when we die and are glorified we will be perfectly sanctified, we will be completely set apart, completely holy. And in between, there's sort of a middle, uh, hence the doctrine, progressive sanctification. We have to work that out. We grow in holiness throughout our entire life. So here's the main truth that I'm trying to get across tonight. And we're going to dive into myths, and we're going to dive into the outline of this text, but I, I want you to grab this if you don't grab anything else from tonight. Just because we are not completely sanctified does not mean that we are not justified. In other words, just because you aren't mature in your faith doesn't mean that you're not in the faith. Let me say that again. Just because you're not fully sanctified doesn't mean you're not justified. Said a different way. Just because you're not mature in your faith doesn't mean you're not in the faith. As we'll get to this, uh, you, you get this random passage about spiritual growth in amidst a just on, uh, onslaught of tests if you're in the faith. And we'll get to why that's placed right there where it is. But I wanted to address um, one, two, three, four, five, six myths about sanctification real briefly. First myth, spiritual growth does not, sorry, I mean, I'm stating these in the positive sense. Spiritual growth does not determine our judicial standing before God. Uh, Philippians 3.9, Romans 4.5. When we are saved in Christ, our sins are completely and totally forgiven. Our works do not get us more or less forgiven. So judicially, when we are saved, our position is secured. Philippians and Romans. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Romans. <clears throat> However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So our standing before God is completed and secured in the faith that we have in Christ's work. We're going to skip over two verses, which are Colossians 2.10, 2 Corinthians 5.21. No matter what our spiritual maturity, when we place our faith in Christ, Christ sees his beautiful life credited to our naturally sinful account. And we're skipping over those. I think the doctrines of um, imp imputed righteousness are very strong, that we have exchanged our sinful life for Christ's righteousness before God. So we're going to go ahead and skip over that. Second, God's love for us does not have anything to do with our performance. First Corinthians, uh, sorry, nope, Romans 5, 8, Deuteronomy 7, 7, Romans 9, 16. God does not love us more or less because of our merit. He loves us because he chose to love us, not because we could ever live a life that would attract his love or merit his love. He loves us because he chose to, because he said he was going to. Romans 5, 8. 
Uh, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, this is in relation to uh, Israelites, but it still has to do with how God sets his love on his people. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Romans 9.16, classic text on God's sovereign electing choice and how that we are found in the spiritual seed of Abraham. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Uh, myth number three, spiritual maturity is not necessarily tied to how long you've been a Christian. And I think that's important, especially when um, obviously discussing things with younger people. Just because somebody is really old or has been a Christian for 50 years, so to speak, does not mean that they have matured in accordance with how long they've been a Christian. Somebody who has been a Christian for you know, a year may have seen much more rapid uh, development and have committed their life much more deeply than somebody who has casually lived that life for 50 years. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. Hebrews and Job, be ready. But I, brothers, <clears throat> cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Long-time Christians can still be characterized by envy, strife, division, sectarianism. And they, they are still Christians. They still pass the test of the faith, but they're just immature. They have not progressed on to ser serious spiritual considerations. Hebrews 5, 12 through 6, 1. In fact, uh, through... Uh, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted for the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for mature, who by constant have uh, trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And then there, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken for maturity. Taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. So there are a sense in which you, know, you hear a lot of people say, keep it on the bottom shelf, keep it simple, keep the cookies on the bottom shelf sort of uh, teaching, in your teaching, keep it simple so that everyone can understand. And frankly, what Paul tries to teach people is not simple, and it is complex. And what he's saying here is, yes, there is absolutely a place for simple truths of the gospel. But there is a time when we need to move beyond this into complexity, into deep stuff. And he is trying to move them on to understanding Christ's high priestly role. And he's saying, you know, you got to get beyond this. You should be teachers of this by now. And yet I'm having to come back through and teach you the very basics all over again. So just because you've been a Christian a long time doesn't mean that you have really nailed down those truths. And Job hints at this in Job 32.9 as well. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Spiritual... Uh, Myth number four, knowing much theology does not make one spiritually mature. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, the love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Just because we have grown to understand knowledge, these people knew the truth that they didn't have to worry about being you know, meat offered to idols, but unless it's mingled with love, it's pretty much meaningless. Love is the barometer of spiritual development. Knowledge is important. You know, you got to move beyond those elementary principles, but if you're just growing in knowledge all the time and not developing more fruit and developing more Christian conduct, then it is fruitless. Uh, James echoes this teaching, James 1.22 and 2.19. Any 
James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Uh, 2.19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Uh, number five, spiritual maturity is not caused by one being busy in the ministry. Just because somebody's embroiled in constant spiritual service and has positions that have a lot of authority or have a lot of spotlight on them does not necessarily mean that they are spiritually mature. It just means they have a position. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Spiritual, uh, finally, spiritual growth is not a mystic experience. It is a pursuit and growth in holiness. Um, there are numerous ways in which the Bible defines um, spiritual growth. It's called falling after righteousness in 1 Timothy 6.1, uh, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12.2, we're skipping over it, uh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Um, as we noted earlier, pressing towards the mark, Philippians 3.14, Colossians 2.7, it's being built up in faith. It's not a mystic experience, a decision, a vision, a sentiment, psychological impulse. It's none of that. It's, it's, um, it is belief in the truth worked through the Holy Spirit that begins our sanctification at salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Uh, go ahead. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And in 15. Mm -hmm. Therefore, brethren, stand fast in all the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. So... We hear all these different things. It's not about how your position. It's not about God's love. Those things are settled. It's not about your position before God. That's settled. All these things are not necessarily indicators of spiritual maturity. And growing and being more holy is merely a response to the love that God has poured out to us. It's not going to change his mind about us. Does that make sense? Okay, I wanted to clear the deck and kind of get that out of the way before we dove into discussing exactly what the stages of um, spiritual growth are. So let's go ahead and look at 1 John once again. Um, let's have whoever has 1 John 2, 12 through 14 read it. Um, I, want you to, I want you to think about where we've come from in this book and all the tests that have been leading up to it. And then you get this random little excerpt. And I, I want you to... I want you to think about the question, does this seem out of place to you? And why do you think it's here if it, if it doesn't seem out of place? 1 John 2, 12-14. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, Father, because you know him who has from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Uh, through 14, if you would. That is 14. Uh, it goes on. Anyway, I write to you fathers because you know him is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Does this little like blip seem out of place to you in First John? Why, why not? What are your, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah. Because um, as we kind of because we've been going through First John like multiple times, you like you specifically would say like he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't like he's you know yeah. you do this or you you know there's there's the consequences yeah. for for this. And I feel like um, not that he's sugarcoating it here, but it, it's a lot. I don't know. Comforting. It's, it's softer. Yeah, yeah it's yes. softer. It's more comforting than. Absolutely. It's, kind of, it's reminiscent almost of when, like, uh, at the beginning of chapter 2 when he says, just in case anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. It's that kind of soft tone that John puts out again. Yeah. It's also more poetic. The style is completely different from anything else. Yes. Uh, the, 
there is a sense in which each of these contains a meter and a rhythm in his writing. That is definitely there. Yeah, there are some, I forget where it is, but he actually uses like plays on words and just very poetic stuff in it. Other thoughts on how it looks dropped in here or not dropped in. What purpose do you think that this little excerpt serves? I think it makes sense there because um, the people reading the letter might be discouraged and um, mm -hmm. he doesn't want people to necessarily doubt that they're a Christian if they are. Right. So it's just to redirect them and say, this is... You're, you're, you are saved. <laughs> right. So the chapter 5, verse 13, I believe it is, it says he writes these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. The very beginning of the book, he says, I write these things so you might have joy. And, and so you, you have all these tests. And if you're not careful, you just get, you know, you just get blasted by week after week as we're doing it. Or just as you're reading through, you're like, man, another one. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And so John, though he's testing the faith, he wants to make sure that his readers know that he is not doubting their salvation. He's testing, he's probing, but his, his goal here is that um, as, as Christians go through this test, it's supposed to be positive, as positive experience. It's supposed to be like, dude, I walk in the truth. Like, I confess my sin, I love others, etc. As you go through that, it's supposed to be like, huh, yeah, that's me. I do that. And so, you know, like, it's supposed to be encouraging. It's not supposed to be like, and, and if, you are, if you are not a Christian, it, I mean, there is a sense in which it is discouraging, absolutely, but for those who are genuine Christians, there should be an uplifting, like, yeah, yeah. And so John is quick to clarify here that he is not doubting that they're Christians. And this is, this is, you know, there's a sense in which it is really easy, as Hillary said, to kind of see your immaturity, see those, those faults and magnify them. And so John wants to be sure to say that while all Christians will pass the test that he's putting forward, there is room in the kingdom for babies. There's certainly room in the kingdom for fathers and there's room for young men in the kingdom as well. There's, there is a sense in which there's a continuum of spiritual maturity of Christians. Everyone that knows the father is going to pass the test, but that doesn't mean that instantaneously everyone becomes the most spiritually mature giant that you're ever going to meet. Matthew 13, 8. But others fell on ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So there, Jesus in this teaching on the parable that we might get into later on um, this semester, this summer, he, he's talking about the parable of seed falling on different soils and now everyone bears fruit. That's what we have said thus far, and we, I think we've sufficiently proven that from Scripture. But Jesus is also quick to say there are some who bear 30, some 60, and some 100-fold fruit. There are different levels of fruit bearing. Now, everyone bears fruit, everyone passes the test, but it doesn't mean everyone's equal. It doesn't mean we're all there or we've progressed to the same level. So as we go through this text, I want you to look at the categories and say, wow, not only do I pass the test, but now I know exactly where I am in my spiritual development. For me, this was really, really encouraging, and I, I hinted at this in band. It was really helpful for me because it, you know when you're lost and you like find a map, like a physical map, like not the ones that show your location on your phones, but like a real map, and like you find where you're at and you're like, oh, well that makes so much more sense. It's encouraging, first off, to know that you're on the map. But secondly, it's encouraging to know that, oh, I'm actually progressing towards my destination. Like, yeah, I'm actually making progress. And so I found this incredibly encouraging because I found myself lumped into one of these categories that he puts forth. And that was encouraging to me because not only did it mean that I have passed the test of the faith, but yeah, I'm going in the right direction. I'm not there. As Paul says, I haven't attained yet. And nor do we ever attain in this life. I'll be quick to clarify that. But it's encouraging because it's like, yeah, 
I'm, I'm here. And this is a good landmark that I'm moving in the direction that I want to. So let's go ahead and read verse 12 again. And I, I have chosen one, um, one way to interpret this. Um, and there's another, there's another way to interpret that I think doesn't change the meaning at all. It just changes how you slice the text up. I've chosen one. I'll present the other just so you know it's there. But um, let's go ahead and read verse 12 once more. I got it. I write to you, little children, because your names are, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Now you'll notice a pattern in this, and this is the school. Like this is not the way I slice this text up, but I want you to notice a pattern, anyways. Children, fathers, young men. Children, fathers, young men. So he kind of goes through it twice. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that verse 12 is referring to all Christians every Christian, and um, then he goes into more, um, more detail after that. So verse 12, boom, all Christians, and then from there you're either a father, a child, or a young man. The reason for that interpretation is the word little children in verse 12 is not the same word as little children in verse 13. Little children, you, know, um, you might have noticed in John's writings, he says little children very frequently. That is the word technia. In verse 13 is, um, is paideia. Technia is often used to mean a little child, but it is also used sort of figuratively in the sense of saying beloved ones. Uh, paideia emphasizes that a little child is under training. Um, one is more relational, one is more instructive. Um, so this, this could be a situation in which um, John is opening saying all Christians all Christians have their sins forgiven for his name's sake now from there fathers children young men um, I think that's a little bit easier to understand it that way which is why I'm presenting it that way but if you see all three as addressing children fathers and young men I'm not mad at that I think both are valid ways of interpreting it okay um, now it is true of all Christians um, according to verse 12 that what I'm doing a little catechizing here. You've been forgiven. Absolutely. Absolutely. All are forgiven. Uh, Ephesians 4.32. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. All Christians have their sins forgiven. Very foundational concept. Now, this is a little less foundational, which is why I included more verses on this. Ezekiel, Psalm uh, Ezekiel 36, Psalm 23, Romans 1, 5, Psalm 106, Psalm 109. Why are we saved? Why are our sins forgiven? According to verse 12. Ezekiel? Um, yes, in just a moment. Um, because your sins are forgiven, why? For his namesake. Yes. For his name's sake. And that is an incredibly common phrase throughout the Old Testament especially, but throughout all of Scripture, is that God does things for his own name, for his own glory, for his own sake. Uh, Ezekiel 36. Uh, therefore I say, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations that you came. Psalm 23, 3 and Romans 1, 5. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his own sake. <clears throat> Romans 1, 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Psalm 106, 109. Uh, yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his power known. And 109. Oh, wait, 109. 106 and 109. I don't, I don't know which order those were. Right. You, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love. Why, why are we saved? It's not for our own sake, actually. We're not forgiven for our own merit. We're not even necessarily primarily forgiven for our own good. God is gracious and loving to allow us to benefit, 
but his primary purpose in forgiving us is for him to be glorified and for his name to be exalted. So John's saying, I'm not doubting your salvation. I know you're all forgiven, not because we deserve it or could ever earn it or could ever merit it, but because God is exalted in forgiving and saving us who are his. Those who are sovereignly chosen by God are forgiven for his name's sake. And Romans 9 has a little bit more detailed treatment of just a little bit of insight into why he forgives some and not others. But that, that's a little bit beyond our discussion. So from here we move into the three categories. And I, I think this is obviously the main thrust of tonight. And so if you're asleep by now, I would wake up um, because this is, this, is the, this is the best part. And it really encouraged me deeply to find out where I am. We're not going to go through the text just straight through. We're just going to pick the categories and bounce back and forth because there is a sense in which he uses repetition. I'm not in any position to tell you why he repeats it. Um, I'll tell you one thing, though. This is kind of comedic to me. There's, you know, it's probably that he was just emphasizing, but, but one theory is that he got through the end of verse 13 and he got interrupted I kid you not, somebody put this out there, that he got interrupted at verse 13. And so he came back and started in verse 14 and wrote it all down again because he forgot where he was. I kid you not, I don't make this stuff up. <laughs> I, was like, I, I feel like he's just repeating it in classic Joanine jo style. He's very repetitious to instruct the learner, but just thought you'd find that interesting. <laughs> what characterizes babies? little children in a physical sense? What are some of the first things that pop to mind? Cute. Okay. No. No, that's, that's fair. Yeah. Smelly. Okay. <laughs> Dependent. That's, that's, that's a good one. I was going to say helpless. Okay. Um, innocent. Very much so. Small. Small. Totally. Other thoughts? It's probably the best question for non-parents. <laughs> Okay. These are all very insightful things. And I think you all would agree with this. You look at a five-year-old, and there are some really admirable qualities that were like, I wish I had that again. <laughs> and there are a lot of qualities in a five-year-old which you're like, I am so glad I do not have that. So glad I stopped peeing my bed two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> children are characterized by a lack I'm sorry I, I wrote this and I probably shouldn't have because I'm going to crack up <laughs> children are characterized by a lack of knowledge but they do know who their daddy is <laughs> I, I, I just thought of that one movie clip where it's like who's your daddy who's your daddy and now this is going on the internet for everyone to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's true. Children are characterized by a lack of knowledge. But they certainly knew who, who their parents are. The very first thing that a child is ever going to say is dada, mama, something like that. Probably mama than dada. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the children's initial reaction is to be lack, lacking in knowledge, certainly, but they know a relationship very well. Uh, Paideia, uh, children, little children, under instruction. Um, Paideia are kids that lack knowledge, hence why they would be tutored by a uh, pedagogos, a, a little child instructor, a tutor, one who is responsible for instructing little ones. In real life, just as in the spiritual realm, babies know one thing for sure, who mom and dad are, Galatians 4, 6. The same is true in the spiritual sense. Little children know who their father is. That's the primary thing. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Babies are unconditionally attached to you. Their very life is wrapped up in a parent. They delight in you. They love in you. They're secured in you. They don't bother to analyze you. They just love you. The same is true in the spiritual sense. Babies are enamored with the relationship they have with God. They have come to experience God and they find a delight in Him, a love in Him, a security in Him. But like babies, they are ignorant. They are not about information. And to translate it over 
it's, it's, it's all about relationship at that point. It, with God, then, it's not about theology. It's not about information. It's about, wow, I, I know God. I know God now. And they're just enamored with that. And I get this from verse 13, where it says, I write to you, little children, because you've known the Father. They've experienced God now. Wow, boom, that's their whole life. But what did we learn from 1 Corinthians 3? This is a passage where he says, I, I can't speak to you as you know, people that handle meat, but as babes. Babes are driven by emotional attachment. And that's evidenced by the fact that these babes in Corinth were attracted to their heroes. They had heroes in the faith, and they were like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And their, their emotional attachment as babies drove them to splitting into sex over the uh, matter. They are drawn by their affections more than their minds. Ephesians 4.14 So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Babes are unstable. When men bring out tricky questions, babes are tripped up. Why do we tell our kids not to talk to strangers? Because they don't know up from down. They have not yet learned to exercise discernment. Does that make sense? So the little children are tossed to and fro on every wind and wave of doctrine that men connivingly and cunningly develop. Babes are people that are going to choose ice cream over spinach every single time. They don't know what's in their best interest because they haven't learned yet. And so cults prey on spiritually immature and unconverted people because men come along with creative ideas, creative doctrines, and babes are just shaken to their doctrinal core. You have people like Bart Ehrman come along that have a PhD behind their name, throw a couple challenging questions at a spiritual baby, and they're going to be real. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, I, I, I've experienced this and I, I'm in, in times past, but I, I've seen it in other people. People that are not grounded, you throw one hard question at them and their whole world starts to fall apart. Now we look on babes and congratulate their innocence we congratulate the fact that they look at the world through rose-colored glasses. We congratulate the fact that they're so excited and energetic about having known God. But yet there is a certain weakness that comes with that. Does that make sense? That, what are your thoughts on that? In context of spiritual babies, what else have you seen characterize spiritual babies if you have anything to add to that? either in yourself or others. Um, one that's <clears throat> mentioned in Corinthians that we read earlier is jealousy. <clears throat> yeah. Other thoughts, if any? Um, I just wanted to share something. I once saw this video of a five-year-old girl who was running around her yard with a big smile on her face, squealing with the most joy you could ever see in a child. She was holding hand in the air, and she was saying, I'm holding hands with God. Mm -hmm. And that can just really express the excitement, the, the plus sides of being a spiritual child. It's like, it's literally just that you're running around foolishly saying, I'm holding hands with God. And even when you trip, you get back up and you keep going. Right. Um, but at the same time, you don't realize that there's a bunch of people out there to get you. Right. There are, there are bad people in the world. There are false teachers. And they are out to get people. And so there's a sense in which there's a weakness there. Now, young men. I wanted to open this question first to the girls. What are some characteristics of young men? What are some of the first things that you think of when you think of just you know, a guy in their 20s, vim and vigor for life? What do you think of? <laughs> I'm very it depends on the this. population. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can think of some that transcend populations. Yeah. Competitive. Okay. 
Okay, very good. That's a very good answer. Other thoughts? Very energetic. Yes. Like, not, not in, like, the childlike way. Like, there is, there's some of that still, because, you know, they just want to, like, pound each other into the ground. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but there's a sense that, like, you know, the competitive nature, like, really comes in. Um, but, I don't know, but, like, there's more aggression and... Passionate. Yeah, much more passionate. I was um, I was shadowing um, the strength and conditioning staff for football team, and <laughs> I, I tell you what, this this it, different areas of life, but I walked into that weight room and I was like, these men are built for war and battle. I I, I don't mean that in a weird way, but like. The, you can tell by the aggression that they move stuff with and even in their playful moments with other guys it's always like they're ready they are ready to throw down they're not violent they're just always they're passionate they're competitive and they're built as warriors and you can see it they have to have something that hits hard because otherwise they'd have nowhere else to express that <laughs> and now, in the physical sense, that's not true for all guys, and I realize that. <laughs> I realize that. I probably represent that population solely here. <laughs> for the guy. <laughs> Never mind. We're done. Anyways, um, any, anything to add to that, young man? I think there's like a bit of like a confidence. Um, mm -hmm. Be either like a bad overconfidence thing. Yeah. or a quiet, sure thing. Bold, yeah. I think is what we're yeah. Yeah. Gold. Gold, right? Yeah, sure. Impulsive. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say impulsive, but very protective. Absolutely. Young men are people who go from relationship to knowledge or relationship to theology. Um, as the verse says here, um, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one, and later on it says, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Young men go from the excitement of a relationship they have with God to an absolute insatiable craving for doctrine and theology. Young men are strong in the word. They overcame Satan. How did they how the young men overcome the evil one? Because they're strong. How do they get strong? Because the word of God abides in them. Because they're rooted in the teaching of God's word. And these are people who truly know what the Bible teaches. While babies are characterized by ignorance, young men are knowledge, strength-driven. Proverbs twenty twenty nine, just in a general sense here. The glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Young men have eaten deeply at the word of God. They've drunk in the milk of the word, as Peter puts it, and strength resulted. They've conquered Satan. Now, we'll get into what that means, but I think the, the word picture is very apt here. Young men can be a little impulsive, but they're strong. They're passionate. They're full of life. They, they're, dare I say, supremely confident in their abilities and and, I mean, if there's ever a point in life to be confident in what you can do, young men have that strength. And they're putting it out there. And that's not what descri describes the fathers. You know, they, they've matured, and we'll get to that. But I think it's a very interesting study to know what it means that they've conquered Satan. What are some of, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you say conquered Satan, just out of curiosity? For me, it was overcome temptation. Okay. I, I think there's an element to that. Um, however, I want to address something different. I think that's I think that's good. Anything else? Any other thoughts? I, I thought that would be, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. So I wanted to ask that question. First thing that comes to my mind. I don't know if it's like an answer to the question today, but it's the concept of like you move from wrestling with Satan to then wrestling with God. Okay. That's that came to my mind. Okay. In order to understand what it means to overcome Satan, we have to understand a little bit about what Satan's ministry is to this world. Not in a positive sense, but what he administers to this world. James 1.14. Um, in order, we, we have to understand that when we sin, and I hear this a lot, 
Satan gets too much credit because he's not omnipresent. He's not causing you to sin. You know what causes you to sin? Is your flesh. Galatians says the works of the flesh are manifest, and James 1.14 puts it even more bluntly. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's not that Satan got on your back and coerced you into the sin per se. Now, there are situations in which I would say that there is a sense in which that's true. But, it, I mean, we are, we'll probably never be graced with Satan himself. He is not an omnipresent being. Okay? You sin when the desires in you for sin, and you go out looking for it, and you're enticed, and then you fall into sin. The desire and actions of sin come from your own person, not necessarily from Satan. Okay, it's from your own lust that you're enticed. Does that make sense? Okay, now then what is Satan's primary involvement? I would argue that a large majority, now we know that Satan accuses the brethren day and night before God, didn't include that in here, but that's certainly one of the things he does. He's up in the courtroom of heaven, you know, bashing us all day. But Two, Satan is largely, largely involved in false religious systems. That's where he makes his heyday, is creating false religious systems and blinding people's minds to the gospel to follow false religious systems. I've included an absolute list of verses here. So if you have one left, it's probably your time. Um, and the reason I, I want to just include so many is... I think it's a little bit of a foreign concept to think of Satan's primary endeavors as concocting false religion, but it is throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 20, 2 Corinthians 11, Leviticus 17, Psalm 106, 1 John 4, 1, Deuteronomy 3, 2, 1 Timothy 4, 1, 1 Corinthians 10, 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would, that, I would not that you would have fellowship with the devils. 2 Corinthians 11. Anyone have 2 Corinthians 11? Wait, is it 13 through 15? It is. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles for Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. False apostles who look pretty and shiny mimic Satan. Satan's not this, like, ugly thing walking around the world. It's what seems attractive. It's those cults that seem attractive. Leviticus 17.7, Old Testament concept as well. They must no longer offer any of the sacrifices to the goat idols, to whom the prostitute themselves. This is to be the lasting ordinance for them and for the generation to come. Uh, different translation has the demons. Uh, Psalm 106.37. They even sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. First John 4.1. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must... Test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world. First John, uh, that was First John, Deuteronomy 32. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. First Timothy 4.1. The spirit clearly says that in latter times, uh, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So young men are the ones so established in their faith and doctrine that no matter what false religious system demons concoct, young men have overcome that. They're not attracted to the cults anymore. They're not swayed by false teaching. Um, they're the, the young men are the kind of people that see a Jehovah's Witness on the corner and want to go strike up that three-hour conversation because they're like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the world straight. Like, there's false teaching somewhere. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to correct it. <laughs> they're going to fix Christianity from liberal theologians who, you know, diminish the work of Christ. They're going to, they're going to end cults. They're going to, you know, talk to the Jehovah's Witness. You know, the, the people who are out to fix heresy, <laughs> wherever they find it. And 
no matter the argument that someone throws at a young man, you know, you, you say, Jesus isn't God, the scriptures aren't inspired. Young men are so grounded in their doctrine that no matter what is concocted, they will stay true. They have overcome them. And that word overcome them is a term that has a fight connotation to it. Like they have fought, they've done that, been there, done that, won that. And, you know, I think, I, think um, I must confess to you that for me personally, I see myself very much in this category. I see myself as a young man flirting with father-like tendencies at times, but largely still in, predominantly still in the young man category. I, I remember what it was like to have rose-colored glasses, to just be enamored with my relationship with God. But I've exited that honeymoon phase. I went through a terrible struggle, doubting some of the very fundamentals of Christianity a while back. And I came through that. God persevered me through that. And now at this point, I am unshakable in those areas. I don't mean that arrogantly. I mean that as the Holy Spirit has grown me to the point where I've been sanctified to no longer being attracted to false teaching. I am grounded in what I believe. My theology is coming together. I have a sureness in my truth and I'm no longer shaken to my core by things that are off from scriptural teaching. I'm like, yep, there's an answer and we're gonna find it and it's gonna be, we're gonna defeat that. Now, I don't necessarily, I, I flirt with the, the fatherly qualities, but I'm not there. And so I see myself very much as you know, energetic, passionate, trying to end false teaching, end heresy, and to a fault at times. And, and so that, that is very encouraging for me because it shows, I look back on those times when, it, like in high school, when you know, we just in, enjoyed that community and fellowship and it was all blissful. I know it's not that now, and I see where I'm at. And so for me, this has been very encouraging. So babies are characterized by what? Just for a quick review before I move on. Absolutely. Ignorance. Babies are characterized by ignorance. Young men are characterized by? Strength. Strength. Absolutely. Now, all are still vulnerable to sin, young men are, but young men are secured in the sense that they are sound in their theology and in their doctrine. But there is one more step, and that is spiritual fatherhood. You've gone from that infantile relationship with God to love for sound doctrine, and you've finally moved into the stage where it is written, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning, and that one who is from the beginning is the eternal God. And, and clearly stated, the goal is this, uh, to know God, and this is what it really is all of, this is where it really starts to come together. So the same word is used for babies knowing God and fathers knowing God, same gnosko root word, which means to experience. But it's, it's not just about relationship anymore with no doctrine. It's kind of come full circle in a sense. That you start out as a baby, you're just excited about the relationship. You move to young men, and you know, they're just set on that doctrine, word, overcoming false teaching, overcoming Satan. But then you move back into fatherhood, and there's a sense in which it comes full circle because you enjoy that relationship but in a thousand times deeper way than you did when you were a baby. Because now you know, you know the relationship with God, but you also know a ton of factual stuff about God. And then when those two things come together, when you start to see the heart of God beyond the doctrine, beyond the facts, you see that this is a very window into God's heart. When you see that you can exalt and worship God because of these glorious doctrines, and you know, that's what I, that's what I mean, I flirt with it. I, I, I have those moments where I'm like truly in awe and praise of God for his wondrous doctrines, but that's not, that's not who I am all the time, but that's where fathers reside. They're just overwhelmed with the relationship with God and have a fullness about their knowledge with him. It moves from coolly explaining doctrine to being overwhelmed with the beauty and truth about God because of how it impacts your relationship with him. It, best illustration, I think, is often found in relationships. It's like, I'm not, I'm not saying I endorse this concept, but love at first sight, right? You're passionately in that relationship at first, but then you start getting to know them. 
you learn facts about them, which initially, just facts. When their birthday is, what they like to eat, you know, it's just facts. But when those two things come together, and you can pour out your love to that person more efficiently and more productively because you know a bunch of stuff about them, that's when the whole picture starts to come together. And in some senses, this is not something, as the word know implies in the Greek, it's not something that really can be explained away. It's something that can only be experienced. And so I can't really quite yet lead you there because I myself am not there, but that's the idea is that we're taking what we learn, we learn it, we grow deeper, and we implement it in our walk with God. So if you're a baby, you're in a wonderful, fanciful, exciting experience with this relationship you have with God, but you're vulnerable, and remember that. And you need to be protected under sound teaching so that you can more firmly, as that verse said, you know, grow into Christ who is the head. If you're a young man, you have incredible strength because you've been made strong. You're no longer vulnerable. You're firmly established in doctrine, but young men haven't quite yet connected it and it hasn't clicked to the heart of God. And finally, if you're a father, it's, you know, I, I envy you in some senses. It's not something that can be completely explained. It's something that can be experienced. Um, here, we'll finish on this first. John 17, 15 through 19. Hear what Christ's prayer is for his disciples. and um, It's truly insightful. It's, it's truly wonderful. Yes, Paul. Before, before we finish, I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are on, like I understand that the concepts apply to women, but I'm mm -hmm. just curious about your thoughts on the vocabulary of the nature of the gender being male in this context. Um, like, I, I understand, but I'm just, I'm just curious. There, uh, there are actually some who have interpreted this passage throughout history to be physical ages, and I don't, I don't see that. Uh, I don't, like, it's not a physical gender, a physical age that John's referring to here. Um, but I think the same applies for women, and I've, I've seen it in some of you in this room. You were at one time enamored with your relationship with God, and not that that ever ends, but I have seen you transition to a strength, to not necessarily a coolness, but it's more about knowledge, it's facts. And so it's not that, um, it's not that these qualities are exclusive to young men. I mean, maybe in the physical sense, yeah. I mean, it's more young men who are driven by competitiveness and such in the physical sense. But I think that passion and energy is also true of women in the spiritual realm. And certainly uh, moving to a father leader like position where you have you've been around a long time in your spiritual maturity and you've grown in that capacity so I don't think it is um, I think the qualities that are represented in men commonly physically are easily transferred to women spiritually does that make sense John 17 15 through 19 I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Yeah, sanctify them. In truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And that's that's a, that's the truest sense and. Uh, Jesus said it right there, sanctify them and uh, sanctify them by the truth. And he clarifies what he means by that. Your word is truth. As Jesus said when he was tempted, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So really, and I, this is not really, I don't think John's really challenging people here. Um, but I mean, I lay out a quick challenge to you and say, may we ever be growing deeper in more knowledge and then hopefully and prayerfully into more intimacy with God as a result of that knowledge. But John here is just giving us a little caveat, a little breath for us to identify where we're at and see that as Christians, he's not doubting us. These tests are meant to show false teachers to be false and real Christians to be real and that we have a lot of potential and that just you're not there yet doesn't mean you won't be yet. As I said at the top, 
just because you're not fully sanctified does not mean that you're not justified. And just because you are not fully mature and fully there does not mean that just because you're not fully mature in your faith does not mean that you are not in the faith. So that is all that we have for tonight. I hope that it has, um, I hope that's encouraged you in a roundabout way just by giving you a little bit of comfort as to knowing where precisely you are. Any recommendations on food?